Welcome to this week's edition of Gravel Travel. I'm your host, JJ LaRue. On her website, she introduces herself as someone who writes poetry about motorcycles, was never home by choice, races in cross-country rallies and writes about adventure and action sports. She also knows a thing or two about good coffee, creative content marketing and chasing after the impossible. So my name is Agla Gerolaitita, and it's always entertaining to uh, to see foreigners trying to pronounce my name. Um, I'm originally from Lithuania, and I've been on the road for, gosh, like seven years now, pretty much. And um, yeah, I got into motorcycling kind of by accident almost. I was just backpacking in Peru. And I, for some reason, I just kept noticing motorcyclists. And I thought, man, this is a really cool way to travel. And so I asked um, a guy who was traveling on a small enduro type bike to teach me to ride. And uh, I bought um, a little Chinese motorcycle in a washing machine shop because nothing else was available at the time. Uh, I was a very small town in Peru and I kind of took off and uh, I didn't really plan to ride around the world at that point or I, I thought I would just ride around Peru for a little bit and just kind of see what happens but I just got hooked and when I found myself on the Bolivian border I was like well hmm Bolivia is like right next door I'll go to Bolivia and I just kind of kept going and never stopped. <laughs> the motorcycle you bought you obviously kept that for a while didn't you? Yeah, I had it for like almost two years. So I went from Peru to Bolivia to Argentina, all the way to Suaya and Tierra del Fuego, and uh, and then back up to I think to Colombia before I had to sell it and go back to Europe to figure out the whole money situation. Because at that point, I knew that I was completely hooked. That motorcycle travel was completely different from what I was used to, which was hitchhiking, backpacking, that kind of thing. And I knew I wanted to carry on riding, but I just had to figure out the whole money situation, obviously, because at that point I'd run out of money. I had to get odd jobs in Argentina, like to work on a horse ranch, things like that. But I knew that that was not sustainable long term. So I needed to kind of find a way to, you know, um, earn some kind of an income while I was traveling. So I spent a year in Europe trying to figure that out and then uh, trying to get different bikes, which is a complete failure because all I knew was that little Chinese motorcycle. And back in Europe, it's all about big bikes and, and you know, CCs and things like that. And I had no idea. I also had no motorcycle friends um, because I was completely new to, to this whole motorcycling thing. And so <laughs> it was kind of tough, really, to figure it all out. Um, but, you know, little by little I did. And I eventually ended up in Arizona. Got my current bike, which is a Suzuki DR650, I call Lucy, short for Lucifer. And uh, yeah, and I've just been riding around ever since. And then uh, last year, uh, Chasing Rally Dakar kind of hooked on the whole rally world. So now I'm attempting to go from adventure riding to rally racing as well. So there's always been that spirit inside, there's that, that, that unrestful you to travel. Um, I think it's it's two things. One is my dad, who was always absolutely obsessed with traveling. So when I was a kid, he would read me, you know, books of Jules Verne and stuff like that. And we would, uh, 
make up these imaginary routes along the Silk Road on these old maps and and and, and all of that. Um, and the other thing was that um, Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union at the time, and we were on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain, so we we're not allowed to go west, right? You could only travel within the USSR. Um, and I mean, you know, uh, we got the independence back when I was a kid, so it wasn't that affected as my, my dad was. Um, but I always had that what if, you know, and when the borders open, I, I just I just knew that I, I, I needed to hit the road. And so that's what I did. <laughs> always wondering what's beyond that little gate there <laughs> and go, go through it and see and find out for yourself. Pretty much. And I still feel, sometimes I feel like this is not even real, even though, you know, Lithuania now it's been an independent country for decades. I have a really good passport that opens pretty much any border. But still, when I, when I was in Patagonia and I called my dad, I'm like, dad, can you believe it? Like I am in Patagonia, like these names, I only read them in books. And all of a sudden I'm here. Like sometimes I still have to kind of pinch myself and then it just, it just feels unbelievable. That's awesome. That's amazing. Like a, a little self. It's not just. It's not just about self discovery. You also see all these new things and meet new people and have all these amazing experiences. And the fact that you can then share that with your dad because you knew he had a mutual interest. Absolutely, and I actually took my dad to Cuba last year, so we finally got to actually travel together, and that was a that was a really really good time because my dad's obsessed with Hemingway, so we went to Hemingway Marina and, and things like that, and got in a boat, and 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 so that was a pretty pretty special experience for both of us, I think, because yeah, we still even though like I said, you know, we're allowed to travel freely now and and things like that. For me, it's still that kind of like wow, I can't believe I'm actually doing this, um, and I know that there's there's this such a thing as sort of travel burnout. I've, I've spoken to, you know, I speak on writers on a, almost a daily basis because um, the way I do earn my income is by freelancing and I mostly write um, articles and things like that. And and sometimes people go like, you know what, after a while, it just feels like it's, it's the same. You know, you get up, you pack your bike, you go, there's another mountain, there's another gorge, there's another canyon, whatever, there's another border crossing, it all kinds of starts to blur together. Um, and I never really had that for me, every new country is like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. Um, but at the same time, this is kind of where the rally racing comes in, in terms of riding, even though I, I always try to stick more to, to like off-road trails, I guess it kind of became not enough at some point. So, so I'm adding that element as well, but yeah, that awe is still there for sure. You have to keep on reinventing, reinventing yourself and you almost, you also have that responsibility because you're now committed to writing articles and stuff. Is that is that's like you say that's your main income stream? Um, yeah, but I mean, it it does not like solely depend on just traveling. I do a lot of like you know content marketing and things like that for companies, and 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 I ghostwrite books as well. So it's not I'm not putting all my all my eggs in just one basket. Um, but yeah, in a sense, uh, but I'm always more interested, not, you know, not blogging about my own travels or doing some kind of a diary vlog type of thing, but rather interviewing others and connecting with, with other people because we're all, we're all doing the same thing, but we all have very different perspectives and that always intrigues me. So I'm super curious to just be chatting to people and, and see what's going on. I have to ask daddy's little goal, obviously there is that kind of concern, isn't it? Because you, you, as a father, I know I've got two girls. There's that protective instinct. So now you're not just traveling 
around the globe all on your own, you're also doing that on a motorcycle. Um, yeah, but my dad is not into motorcycles at all. I actually once took him on the back of the bike and, and, and he started screaming that you're going to kill me, please stop, <laughs> even though I hadn't even got out of the second gear. So he's not into, I mean, he got his own driver's license when he was in his 50s. So he's not into that kind of thing at all, but he does appreciate the traveling part. And uh, we even have this game where I send him photos and he can most of the time he can very accu accurately say oh this is this place this is that country um but in terms of worrying no i don't think he's that worried i mean when i was like 17 or 18 i started hitchhiking all, all over europe because the borders were open but i was young and broke so that was like the perfect way to travel and i remember uh, i got separated from a friend somehow i was in spain north northern spain and i had like two euros on me somehow because they took off and, and I, I don't know and i was like oh man i'm in trouble what do I do? And I call dad and I'm like, dad, so I'm in Northern Spain and I've got like two euros on me. And he goes like, oh, well, good luck with that then and hung up. So <laughs> I think <laughs> he kind of taught me a lesson right there. And I think he kind of has enough confidence in me to figure things out on my own. And so it's all good. Oh, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. But on the topic of finances, you obviously now I mean, do you are you ever comfortable in the sense that you you live with the unexpected, or is there a constant enough income stream that you can plan ahead? I mean, and I'm only asking this question because I'm sure. Well, I know there's a lot of people that are interested in your form of travel, um, you and and many other different people, um, and and how do you actually achieve that? Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do that. Uh, I can see from, you know, the whole like adventure travel blogging social media scene kind of exploded over the past few years. So there are some travelers who are actually making enough um, just from their, say, YouTube channels or their Instagram accounts or whatever. But I think what people fail to understand is that that is also hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. And just because you're riding around the world is not really that special in itself anymore. So if, if you're going to go that way, you got to make sure that your content is really extraordinary or, or entertaining or whatever that you're bringing value to people. And, and again, that's going to take, I don't know, months, if not years to build. And so for me, because I always wanted to focus on kind of interviews and, and talking to other people, I, I never went that way. Maybe that was a mistake. I don't know. I'm not sure. But um, I just kind of went more traditional way of just trying to earn money. So my background is in journalism. So I just figured, okay, well, can I transfer my skills um, from the office to the online world uh, on a freelance basis? And, you know, it's, it's, again, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of consistency. It takes a lot of sort of I guess you could say resilience, like not to take rejection personally, because that's going to happen quite a lot. <laughs> and I remember my first, um, like I made my first gig paid 25 euros for an article on, I believe, Chile or something like that for a travel magazine. Now, when you look at that, at those 25 euros, you can think, holy shit, like that's just, that's pennies. There's no way this is going to pay for my travels. But the way I looked at it was like, okay, all right. So I got the 25 euros for my first freelance gig. All I got to do is now add another zero to it, right? How do I do that? And then another one. And you just kind of build on that. And again, yeah 
tons of work, tons of rejection, tons of ups and downs. But just like with anything in life, you know, if you work hard enough and be consistent enough, then you'll make it. And it doesn't have to be writing or photography or blogging or, or YouTube. Any skill nowadays can be transferred online. And I think this whole Corona mess is teaching a lot of people how to work online now. And so that might actually be, I don't know, uh, a good um, a good point to to start kind of looking towards that. And of course, there are drawbacks. So you're not, um, you know, you have to stop and and like I stop, get an Airbnb, get some work done every once in a while. So it's not all just fun and games. It's not that I'm constantly just riding, enjoying myself, racing rallies, and it's all good fun all of the time. Um, and you do have to be strict with yourself, and you have to get stuff done. So you know, it's not for everybody. A lot of people enjoy just saving up and then traveling nonstop for X amount of time, then going back to work. It's all it's all about what you want to do and how you want to do it. I think people sometimes become too frazzled with the idea or they, they, they are very, they love the idea of going out there and traveling, but they get frazzled by the fact that how will I earn a living on the road? But it seems to me that, I mean, you've got a nice balance because you are a journalist. So what you're doing is you're combining the two, which is perfect. And in one of our previous guests was Reggie Kumalo, who's an artist. So what he did was he decided to go from Johannesburg to Cairo to discover himself in, in many different ways. But while he was on the road, he would paint a painting and get to Malawi, Lalongwe, and have an exhibition and sell the painting and immediately have a bit of cash for him to carry on, you know. And then, and then he got to Kenya and he did the same thing in, in Addis Ababa. So in that way, he used his art to fund his, his road travel. Yeah, and, and again, it doesn't have to be art or photography or writing. Like, you know, if you go to – even if you start with the basic stuff like going on Upwork or Fiverr, you can get gigs regardless of your profession, accountants, project managers, like just about anything can be done online now. Even if you're like, I don't know, a plumber, hey, set up a plumbing consulting business online, whatever, you know, give people advice on, on pipes. I, I don't know. But but it's just it just takes a little bit of creativity and just trying to figure out how you can use your existing skills, transfer them online and do it from anywhere in the world. That's that's it, really. Now, you've. You've made this choice to to change things up a little bit to go and race. So t tell us about that in in I want to say in life. How does that work out? So you I want to use uh, Lyndon Poskett as an example because he's been very successful in that. So do you ride from point A to B and there's a rally and then you take part of it or how do you are you just going completely rally racing or riding no i'm pretty much yeah just traveling and then i come across a rally and then um and then i race and of course you know i am no Lyndon posket i have nowhere near the skills or the mechanical knowledge or the bike for that matter i mean i'm still on my <laughs> old dr 650 um so so i'm definitely not there yet um and i have huge respect for what he's done and how he's done it and all his media work i mean that's absolutely amazing um but uh yeah the concept is pretty much the same and um um, I think for me, you know, racing, like I, I only started riding off-road three years ago. 
So I am under no illusion of ever getting good at rally racing or placing anywhere or, you know, coming in in the top 10, 20 or even 50 probably. Like that's that's not my <laughs> my aim here. Um, I just really, really enjoy the, the thrill of a race in the sense that uh, I'm not out there to beat anybody else except myself. And, and you do improve your riding by leaps and bounds in the rally race. And in you get into this, um, I recently read up on it, actually, there's a psychological term for it called the flow, where you're so present, so in the moment, everything is such sharp focus, you know, and, and, and you just get into the zone. And, and that just, I don't know, I'm just kind of chasing that high, I guess, in a sense. And, and um, but, but I'm surely it, it's a bit more, it takes a bit more out of your motorcycle because you, I, I mean, you use your DR to to race with, so there's that kind of extra elements thrown into it at the end of the day, where you might damage your bike, um, you know, having a little offy or um, spending a bit more money on things like sprockets and chains and maintenance when you do race. Yeah, you might damage your bike, you might damage yourself. <laughs> There's definitely the risk is definitely higher than if you were just just riding out there on the trails. But again, with me, you know, because I'm quite new to to motorcycling, I, I, I you know a lot of a lot of riders learn to ride as, as children, or they're into you know they're born into a motorcycling family, things like that. For me, not at all. I just came came into it completely out of the blue. And you know, I started on this little Chinese bike and then worked my way up and 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 and. It's kind of the same with racing. My first rally race was Hellas Rally last year, and I came in dead last every single day. Now, I don't have a big ego, but I mean, oh my God, <laughs> that was just like... <laughs> that it doesn't, was, uh, it yeah. doesn't help um, to come last all the time. No, it does not. It does not. It does weird things to your morale. But, um, you know, like the organizer of the Hellas Rally, Miletus, says the best practice for a rally is a rally. So you do that. And even though it was completely miserable as a sporting result, right, like dead last, like, wow. But I did learn a ton. I learned a lot about myself as a rider. I learned a lot about my bike. And frankly, I mean, the DR is, is, is kind of indestructible. And I have tried believe me and you know it, it doesn't really uh take that much maintenance you don't have to change the oil every day like these highly strong kdms you know so it's not just throw a good pair of tires on it and uh and then that's about it but then because i had this hellas experience then i started to look more into training um riding off-road more uh working on my speed things like that and then I upgraded my suspension this year, which is making a huge difference. So I fully understand that the DR650 is never going to be a rally bike. And I'm never going to be a, like a, you know, proper rally competitor. But that's kind of not the point for me. It's just building on these skills and, and, and just growing, I guess. And, and I'm just enjoying the process. I'm not, like I said, I'm not um, aiming for any great results here. I'm just, I'm just in it for myself. And I'm also quite amazed how accessible rally racing really is. If you come in from like the adventure riding world, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not talking about the Dakar or the Africa Eco race, but these mid-level amateur friendly rallies like Hello Saris, Baja Rally in Mexico, you know, they're quite accessible and they're a ton of fun. And it's just, yeah, I'm just riding that wave right now. 
every time you compete, you have to just then come second last and third last and fourth last, you know, just to help you with your ego. <laughs> I mean, if the That's if the good. aim is not to come first, at least you know, just move up one position from from the back, you know, and then. Yeah, and and I have you know this year at Hispania Rally, I was I believe one hundred and twelfth, which for me is amazing. So. <laughs> So it's all good, little by little. Are you working your way up to competing in something specific again? Or is there an end goal? Are you dreaming about some big rally? and Or is it really just a fun element? Um, I do have a big dream, absolutely, because uh, that that's kind of why I got into this in the first place. So I was, in 2019, I was in Peru, and I realized that Rally Dakar was going to be held in Peru only. Like, it was the one year where it was supposed to be in just one country, and I was there. And uh, I remember talking to my editors at ADB Writer, and they were like, yeah, it'd be cool if you could cover it. Uh, but, you know, accreditations for Dakar are, like, incredibly expensive. So I had to find my own way to kind of sneak into the bivouac and stuff like that. And at first I was like, yeah, maybe I'll chase it for a couple of days, tops. I'm not that much into racing. I'm not a competitive person. I'm not just into the racing world much, you know, just didn't have a lot of interest. But since I was there... Why not? And from the minute I got to the Lima bivouac, I was like, oh, man, I am not missing a minute of this. This is awesome. And the why, the, the big why for me is why it was so awesome. It wasn't the cool helicopter shots and, I don't know, taking a selfie with Toby Price, although he's a very cool dude. It's all good. But uh, it was about more the the completely ordinary people doing the absolutely extraordinary. Because a lot of the privateers, the rookies, the amateurs, they're coming from all kinds of different backgrounds. Like, you know, one guy was a mechanic in Amsterdam. Uh, another gal was a fitness training from Czech Republic. They're just completely normal people doing the Dakar, which is absolutely insane, right? It's a huge challenge for the pros. So, so all these people are just doing the impossible. And that was like the hook for me, chasing the impossible. Because once you know that that's out there, it just kind of, I don't know, it just, just really drew me in. That's brilliant. I mean, because we always look over and beyond all of that, don't we? Because you always see the bright lights and the big cars, but you forget there's so much else going on at at ground level. There's so many other things. I always wonder, you know, where do they sleep and what do they do, you know, as just normal support staff and crew? Except, I mean, yeah, we love Toby Price and we love the whole KTM and and and, and Red Bull thing. It's fantastic. But what happens to those people? Yeah, especially in the Malimoto camp, because imagine these guys, they're uh, towards the back of the pack anyhow, most of them anyway. So they come in at midnight sometimes. They have an hour to do their road books, uh, to maintain their bikes, and then they have a couple of hours of sleep, and then they go to the start line again, and again, and again, and again, day after day. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible to see them succeed and 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 you know because by day i think four or five you see them changing out of their gear and they're all black and blue and there's blood and there's broken ribs taped up and all kinds of crazy crazy things they're exhausted they're fatigued they're disoriented and yet still they do it and still they finish so to me that was the you know because because something that used to seem impossible is now possible so then the, the, that kind of just keeps happening right so what else is out there what else is possible what else can you do and it's just it's it's pretty exciting is that something that would interest you uh, the the car rally to do as a competitor absolutely 
Absolutely, 100%, of course. I mean, wow. Can you imagine? I mean, it's a lot of hard work and run up to it, but I think it's you're almost in the perfect position. You can still have fun, travel around the world, and build yourself up to to that, to become a competitor. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, it's not like I have a bunch of sponsors breathing down my neck and going like, okay, you have to do this this year or that year. I can do it in 10 years, maybe. And, of course, if I said I'm going to do the Dakar right now, that would sound pretty ridiculous. I'm still 112th at Hispania rally. So, you know, chill out, just chill out for a little bit. But, you know, I was talking to Joey Evans, a South African writer, I believe, right? Um, and Joey is such an inspirational person. Like, I could just listen to him for hours and hours. He's just awesome. And and he was kind of saying the same thing. You know, it took him 10 years to go to Dakar. And let alone the fact that he came back from this complete paralysis and this horrific accident. Um, and he had to build from scratch, pretty much. Because he said, you know, when he started going back on the bike and back into racing, he was all of a sudden, he found himself at the back of the pack, which was never the case for him. And so he had to overcome so much. But he said the same thing. At first, you get back on the bike. And then you go off-road. Then you do a little local race. Then you do a bigger one. Maybe the next year you can go and do one of these European rallies, like Hellas or Hispania or Iberia or something like that. Okay, now maybe you can try a North African rally, a smaller one. Okay, and now suddenly you are doing Merzuga or something like that. And at that point, if you say you're going to do the Dakar, now that is a whole different story. You know, because you, you like you said, you just build up and, and who knows where that's going to lead. So I don't want to say, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to do the Dakar. I want to do the Dakar because right now it is quite ridiculous. <laughs> but let's talk again in three years and see... See where I'm at at that point. What's very inspiring is the fact that you're not just talking about it. You're actually taking steps towards that bigger goal. You are you are partaking in other little rallies and you are building up strength and experience. And and at, at the same time, you can still have a hell of a lot of fun. There's no You don't really have to explain to anyone. You're just having fun doing a rally. Pretty much. And I think that's kind of the whole point, because when it becomes your job, you know, then then that might change. And and uh, yeah, right now I, I don't have like any deadlines. I'm not imposing any deadlines on myself like, oh, by year this, I have to be I have to have completed this amount of rallies or I have to have done a desert rally or things like that. I'm just kind of taking it by ear, really. And 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 um Right now, I have. Um, I'm really hoping to get to Baja Rally in Mexico in September, um, and then Hellas Rally in Greece, and finish off with Iberian Rally in Portugal. And then, if I if I can pull that off, then next year I'm hoping to finally <clears throat> start thinking about desert rallies in North Africa, not the huge ones, but perhaps something like the Touareg or Pan Africa or something along those lines. And then let's see let's see what happens then, because again, a desert rally, like a full on desert rally, even the smaller one. It's a completely different ball game than Hellas or, you know, Saras, where they use tracks, so the navigation is not that complex, and and, and it's still it's still quite doable. Whereas a desert rally, that is that is a different beast. So yeah, just just kind of doing as much as I can, um, building those skills and and seeing where that takes me. I think it's very, it's quite amazing because I, I'm very well aware of the fact that there's so much growth. I don't know if it's growth or awareness of of women in these disciplines. I mean, it's phenomenal. If you see 
all these, all of a sudden there's these girls coming out of the woodwork who's been on the road. I mean, that's obviously an awareness thing. But now it's not only that. I mean, we had two South African entrants, women, into, um, into the, to the Dakar this year. And it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing that... And, and they both finished as well, right? Kristen and Tay? That's correct. I mean, I love it. I think it's, you know, all you don't have to stand back for anything. You know, you you guys just go out there and you do it. <laughs> is there is there anything special that you pack with um while while you do these trips? Um, not really, to be honest. I mean, it's I'm I'm just trying to keep things as simple as possible because then, you know. It, it's complicated enough to be riding around the world trying to race and trying to earn an income and kind of keeping that whole show going. It's, you know, it's quite a lot already. So I need my bike to be as simple as possible so that whenever I need to service it or maintain it or I need to, I don't know, change out a clutch, whatever it is, it's simple, it's easy, and, and, and I can go to any mechanic anywhere in the world and they will know exactly what they're doing. Um and it's the same with packing. I carry Moscow Moto luggage. I have two pioneers and a duffel bag, and that is it. And uh, it's, yeah, I just like to, to, to have everything as simple as possible. I have, you know, just regular stuff. So my duffel bag is my office. That's where my laptop and all my electronics live. Then one pannier used to be dedicated to, all, to my camping gear, like 10 sleeping bags, sleeping bed, that kind of thing. But now, because of all these rallies, I actually carry motocross gear because racing in an adventure suit is not a good idea. So that's a bit of a trade-off. I suppose I could stick a tent and a sleeping bag on top, but then that would be a lot of stuff. And I just, I like to keep things kind of minimal in that area. And then the 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 the, the other panniers, just closed toiletries, that kind of thing. I mean, the world is is a much more civilized and developed place than a lot of people imagine it is and yeah you can get to some remote areas and you can get you know other in the sticks but it's never you're never going to be that far away from a bigger town or city and any bigger town or city will have supermarkets and you can buy your socks and your chargers and whatever else it is that you might need and so i think you know there's no point in overthinking and Everybody overpacks for the first time and, and everybody changes their setup as they go along. There's no need to kind of aim to have a perfect setup for your round the world trip because that's not going to happen anyway because we're all different. We all have different needs. So you'll figure it out as you go along. You will throw some some stuff away or send it back home. You will get new stuff. You, it'll change and that's perfectly fine. There's no need to aim for that perfect bike, perfect setup and now the, the trip is going to be perfect. That's not how it works at all. So I think it's much, it's much better to be prepared to improvise and kind of be resourceful and just go for it than try to, to figure out what's like the ideal setup. It's interesting that most people, everyone I've spoken to, all started off with way too much stuff. And then you realize, well, you know what, life is so simple. You actually don't need that, do you? No. But it takes time. I mean, you can you can read about it. You can read 10 different blog posts saying the same thing. But you need to experience it to truly understand it and believe it, I guess, for yourself. Because theory is one thing, practice is another. That's just how it works. And 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 it's you know what? I think it's totally fine to overpack as well. Hell, if you if you feel like you need all of that stuff on your bike, go with all of that stuff on your bike. If that makes you happy, great, fantastic. But if you know somewhere along the way you start feeling like, man, this is way too much weight, or this is way too cumbersome, or whatever, get rid of some of that stuff. Send it back home. 
give it away, whatever. There's, you know, it's it's totally fine to just figure things out as you go along, I think. I have to ask about the choice of motorcycle. Why a DR650? This, and it's interesting that there's a fair amount of around the world travelers use the DR. Was was that the reason or was it something that just came up and, and it seems like the right choice financially and and all-round capability? Man, you know, I would really love to tell you that I have some kind of a noble reason for that or that I chose that bike because I understand so much about motorcycles and that made like the perfect sense at the time. Unfortunately, I cannot say that. Um, this was just an opportune chance. I was traveling with my ex-partner at the time. RTW Paul, I believe he was on your podcast, and uh, um, and uh, we decided we were in Europe at the time. We decided to get two bikes because two up is just not something that I enjoy to do. And he was like, "Hey, this, these friends of mine are selling these two DRs. Let's go for those." And I said yes, and that was that. So sadly, <laughs> it wasn't a conscious, well thought of choice at all. Um, I confess, so it's all his fault. And and he, uh, you know, he he actually built that bike in the sense that he did a lot of mods on it. Um, changed a bunch of things so it's definitely not a stock version um but um unfortunately you know we parted ways and i've been traveling on my own for a little over two years now i believe and uh and then i made some some other uh mods and changes like like i said you know the suspension things like that and uh, i actually finally got to really know the spike and 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 because i had to service it maintain it and so on and so forth and i wouldn't change it for the world and of course yeah now that i started with the rallies the kdm 690 would make a lot more sense right or the husky 701 or, or hell maybe even that new tenere it looks really pretty you know the tenere 700 right yeah t7 yeah yeah, yeah especially the rally version Ugh. But, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the DR simply because, like I said, it's so simple, fixable anywhere in the world. It is pretty indestructible. It can take a beating and another one and another one and another one and it'll just keep on going. Um, I used to ride horses and I used to own horses. So I still compare bikes to horses. So to me, a DR is like, you know, it's not very elegant like a racehorse or very like a like a hunting type horse, very sort of robust. And, and, and it's not it's not good. It's not particularly good at anything, but it will keep on plodding along. So imagine like a fat, furry Shetland pony. It's not beautiful. It's not great at any one particular thing, but it'll just keep on going and going and going. And, and it's really, really reliable. And that's just, that just works for me. Yeah, that's all you need. You need that. You need, I mean, it's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your transport. It's your home. It's, it brings you from A to B. And now you can rally on it. And you've got that trust in it. You know, you swing your leg over, you press that button, and you're going to go. I mean, obviously, you do the maintenance and, and look after it that way. And that's brilliant. That's all you need, really. Well, I mean, again, it depends how people travel. So um, sometimes if people have, like, a really limited amount of time. So, the, you know, the traditional Alaska to Soaya route, for example. If somebody only has a few months to do it and they still want to do the entire route, then, yeah, GS1200 is probably a better choice just because you will need to do these crazy miles and you'll probably do quite a lot of pavement just to cover the distance. If this is the way you travel, then that way makes perfect sense. You know, if you're somebody who wants to stick to, I don't know, single track, then get a 250. Um, you know, so, so it really, really depends on what you want to do with that bike and, and how are you going to travel, how much time you have, are you going to, what kind of mileage are you going to be doing daily? 
what kind of roads, off-road, and so on and so forth. So it's a very, very individual choice. But in terms of just reliability and the fact that you cannot destroy this bike, I think it, it is a pretty good choice. Do you do some of the maintenance yourself? Would you do all changes and, and things like that? I do now, and I'm very, very proud of it because I always had this story in my head that I was use that I was absolutely useless when it came to mechanical things. And I can tell you a story why. I don't know if we still have the time for that. But when I was still traveling in my little Chinese motorcycle, I had this episode in Argentina. It was a really uh, horrible weather. Uh, the whole day was just raining. It was just absolutely miserable. And I was kind of somewhere near Buenos Aires, I believe. And, and it was just torrential rain. I was just kind of crawling along. All, all of a sudden, I lose all power, right? And I'm like, oh, man, what's happening here? I mean, the engine is still on. There's no power. So I tried to gear down, nothing, and I just kind of rolled to a stop. The engine is still on, but the gears don't work. And I'm like, oh, okay, 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 hold on, okay. Um, gears don't work, so there's something with the gearbox, I guess. I don't know. I'm like, I've never owned a motorcycle before. I have no idea. But I decided it must be the gearbox. However, because it was raining so bad, the only dry place on the bike was the seat. So really didn't want to get off and investigate. So I'm just kind of sitting there shivering, thinking, okay, well, what the hell am I going to do? Even if it is the gearbox, I have no idea where that even is or how to, like, I, you know. And all of a sudden, there's these riders that come in the opposite direction. And they stop and they approach their Argentinian riders and they're like, what's going on with you? And I'm just like, well, I think it's the, I think it's the gearbox. And they're like, what? So I tell them my gearbox theory again. And they're kind of trying not to laugh. And they're like, dude, your chain fell off. <laughs> okay <laughs> so you know so they came back on and they tightened it a little bit and but but i just felt like such a moron and from then on i was like yeah no okay all these mechanical things this is not for me um but with that dr i mean little by little yeah i can at this point absolutely i can change the oil i can do like the, these basic things but i'm even more proud of the fact that i can now diagnose things so for example i um uh, i went to south america this year as a motorcycle tour guide so i had to leave the bike with a friend for a few months in winter time and when i started riding towards poland now i kind of felt like the throttle response wasn't great and i was like oh i gotta clean the carb now i cannot clean the carb myself but i i got what what the problem was i went to a mechanic and i'm like dude could you please clean the carb for me and i tried to watch the entire process and hopefully learn something so I'm not doing it myself, but I'm able to spot what the problem is. And then if I'm not able to do it myself, at least I'll take it to a mechanic and tell him exactly what to do. Or like when I had an oil leak, I was like, oh, front sprocket seal. And that's sure enough, that's what it was. And that makes me feel really, really proud. I know it probably sounds silly, especially for mechanically minded people. They're probably laughing right now. But for me, this is a huge achievement. So to answer your question, yeah, I do the basics myself. What I can do, I take it to a shop, but um, at least I'm getting to know this bike so well that I'm able to kind of diagnose what, what's going on. And yeah. What would be the best piece of advice that you would leave with someone that wants to attempt something like you do? Just go for it. Don't overthink, don't overplan, don't overobsess, just go for it. And then, yeah, you know, there's going to be all kinds of screw ups and, and mishaps all kinds of things are going to happen but you will it out because this is not in the end it's not rocket science it's just life you know like in life you figure things out taxes or rent or, or somebody being sick or all kinds of things happen to us right that we don't expect and don't prepare for and we deal with them 
right? So it's kind of the same with traveling or even rally racing. If, if that's something that you want to do, if you've been dreaming about it, go for it and you will figure things out as you go along, I guarantee you, because once you get the ball rolling, there's no going back. That's it, you're on the road, so. <laughs> I, ha- I want to ask you one last time. Can you just say your name and surname again? Oh, you're going for the surname too. That's brave. Okay. Agla Gerulitita. Brilliant. <laughs> Agla, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me here. And I love your podcast and keep doing what you're doing. It's really awesome. So thanks again. If people want to communicate with you, what is the best platform um, to do that? Probably Instagram or the website. Uh, so it's ADB to Rally and the website is under the same name, ADB to Rally.com. Just a reminder that if you would like to communicate or get hold of any of our guests on the show, please go into the show notes. You'll find all the relevant information there. You enjoyed this podcast, right? Would you please consider leaving a short review on Apple? It takes less than 60 seconds and it makes a difference in convincing hard-to-get guests. We are also available on Outcast, Spotify, Google and all other major platforms. Thank you for listening.